Hello and welcome to the Not a Victim podcast. Not a Victim is a show about learning to live a life without excuses. Today's guest is Curry Haynes. Here's the show. All right, man, so just give me a little bit about your background and your upbringing and just kind of everything that led to where okay, you were. Okay, I was born in Griffin, Georgia, August the 25th, 1945. Uh, my parents uh, were both involved in education. My father was a college professor and my mother was a student nurse at the infirmary on the campus. Uh, we moved when I was one month old to Oxford, Georgia, to the Emory University, uh, Oxford College. And uh, my father taught biology, and my mother worked in the infirmary there. I lived in the dormitory and uh, had an adventuresome life living in the dormitory. Oxford was a real small town bordered by woods on all sides, and uh, it was such a free and easy town. When I was six years old, I could leave home at six o'clock in the morning and go have breakfast with one friend, play all morning with him, then go have lunch with another friend, play all afternoon with him, and then go have supper with another friend and come home at 8 o'clock at night, and my parents wouldn't be upset. Uh, Parents communicated where their children were in the town, and uh, it was just a a free, kind of easy-living town. I went to church at... Allen Memorial Methodist Church. Both my parents were active in church. My mother and father were Sunday school teachers. I believed in Jesus Christ and believed in God, but I didn't have a good understanding of God. I did poor in school. I started going downhill in the second grade. I had ADD, and uh, I felt like I was a disgrace to my parents because both of them were in higher education and I was having trouble getting from one grade to the next. My sister, I had a sister that was two years younger than I was. Uh, She did well in school, but I didn't do so good. I also had curvature of the spine and caused me to be extremely pigeon-toed. And my mother would mother me to death while my father, who was 48 when I was born, just sort of was a disciplinarian but didn't have a close relationship with me. My mother had me taking tap dancing, tumbling, ballet, all kinds of stuff to straighten out my back. I had took piano and flute lessons. I had a ear for music, but I didn't. I played by ear, and I didn't take time to learn to read music like I should. My first time I drank, I was 13 years old, and I was on a band trip and a band bus, and we had slow gin. The thing about the alcohol was it made me 
more outgoing and a lot braver. I could do a lot better with attracting females when I had a few drinks. So I loved it. I just drank on occasions, and then when I got in high school, I drank on the weekends. High school was tedious for me. Didn't do well in school and had a real problem with mathematics, especially algebra. And I ended up repeating the 11th grade and then got sent off to military school, Gordon Military College in Barnesville. And um, I kind of liked the military structure, but it was putting a bunch of problem children all dressed the same in one barracks, so to speak, and the only thing that clashed were personalities, and it was um, uh, wasn't that beneficial to me, except that it did gear me for uh, when I finally flunked out of school at Middle Georgia College. I left Barnwell after two years and went to Middle Georgia College and made D's the first quarter, and the second quarter I made it incomplete, but back then you had to maintain a 2.3 average or you get drafted. Another thing that happened while I was in high school was my father helped finance me to learn to fly, and I took up flying lessons in a raggedy old J3 in Billerica, Georgia, from a pot smuggler. Uh, he was an ag pilot that flew for the Church of God and flew missionaries down to Valise and carried marijuana back to Fulton County Airport. And uh, he never got caught, but they got him on conspiracy. And he had to do nine months in the federal prison, but he retired with about $10 million. He was a good flight instructor, but a lousy pilot. Later on, he got killed giving flight instruction lessons to a student. I liked his personality, and he drank a lot and was uh, kind of a hell raiser. And um, I stayed with he and his wife, um, and it was a guaranteed solo course, 10 hours of duel for $80. And um, I soloed in five and a half hours. And when I went down to Middle Georgia College, I got checked out in a plane from Ag Pilots at Cochrane Field and uh, did a lot of flying down there and took students for rides. They'd all chip in money and pay for the plane, and I'd take them flying and bill my flying hours. I also was living in a off-campus dorm, and nobody was tucking me in at night, and so we drank heavily. I did take up some hobbies and Started into spelunking, did a lot of caving with a friend from uh, East Point, Georgia, and um, riding motorcycles. But like I said, you had to maintain a 2.3 average or you get drafted, and I got drafted after the second quarter. Went into the Army and loved the Army, enjoyed it. Took basic training at Fort Benning and did real well and wanted to since I'd had a uh, experience flying and had a private license with about 200 hours 
I wanted to take up aviation in the Army, and I applied for one officer flight training program. And I passed the test and got assigned to one officer school and was waiting for a class date when I was told that I ought to go ahead and transfer to infantry OCS and be a regular officer. And that's way, that way I wouldn't have to put up with one year of harassment. It would just be six months of harassment and then I'd be a regular officer, and then I could transfer to flight school. Well, I said, okay, I'll do that. So that with that, I got orders cut to Fort Dix, New Jersey, for advanced infantry training. And after advanced infantry training, I got a leadership position at Fort Dix. And in the Army, you could party hard and work hard. And I would go to Philadelphia and drink on the weekends and come back. I had a Triumph Bonneville motorcycle and a friend from New Orleans that rode with me. And uh, we'd go down to Philadelphia and hang out at bars and chase women and do the usual stuff and then come back and work hard at Fort Dix. And uh, I got moving along pretty good when an advisor told me, he said they had a critical shortage of infantry officers in Vietnam and they would not honor my contract. Back then, they didn't have to honor your contract if there was a critical shortage. And that I would have to do three years as an infantry officer and then transfer to flight school. And that sort of made me mad, and so I terminated the program but that stuck me with an infantry job description, and I uh, got sent to Fort Benning to jump school because you either had to be airborne or or a ranger to be an infantry OCS, and I figured I'd rather have two weeks of PE and one week of uh, being afraid rather than six weeks of crawling around on wet rocks in Dahlonega. So I went to jump school, got airborne certified, and while I was there, they had a Saturday afternoon police call where they were going to police up the training area. But they said that they had three special forces guys in these green beret uniforms, and they all look classic, like right out of Robin Moore's book, and like Barry Sadler singing the Green Bray Ballad, and, and I'd heard a lot about it, and they said, if you think you're man enough, go down to Theater 3, and we'll see if you're man enough to be in Special Forces. Well, 13 of us out of over a thousand guys went down to Theater 3. I did it to get out of detail. And uh, all 13 of us passed the test, and all 13 of us ended up with orders cut Fort Bragg for Special Forces Training Group. And I was in Special Forces Training Group for about five months, and the only MOS or job descriptions that were open were engineer communications and medical and I took communications um, I didn't want to be a medic and uh, I didn't pass have good enough math for the engineering 
skills. So I took communications, and you had to sit in a classroom for eight hours a day listening to Diddy Dum Dum Diddy on the tape recording and send and receive eight word groups a minute. And I have a hearing problem where the dits and the das started sounding the same after about five words a minute. And I got recycled and tried it again, but I still couldn't get my code speed up to eight words a minute. So they terminated me from Special Forces, and I got assigned to Vietnam. I got assigned to the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vietnam. While I was got sent to Vietnam, and I was there a week taking jungle training, before they assigned you to your company, and then guarding the Burham around Benoit Air Base. And there was nothing real activity going on there, but I was nervous. I thought there was a gook behind every bush, you know, and I'm a little uneasy. But I got assigned this position for guard duty, and there were these two guys that were really sorry. And they had permanent positions guarding. And this one guy opens a cigarette pack up of Kent cigarettes rolled with red stripes on the uh, package. And he says, you want a Zig? And I said, yeah, I like a cigarette. And he said, no, man, not a cigarette, a joint. I said, a joint? He said, Marijuana, man, M-A-R, you know, I had never experienced marijuana. Well, I was in Vietnam, and you ought to try everything once before you die, so I lit up a joint and took a puff on it, and he said, no, 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 you take it down. So I took a big hit and took it down, and about the third big hit my right leg floated up over my head and uh it turned out i was smoking cambodian red with opium chipped up in it and the most devastating pot that there was and i got paranoid as i could be i kept telling them how long does this last how long i was used to alcohol high not a marijuana high and uh, got terribly paranoid, and I was making them paranoid. And they just told me to shut up, and it'll be all right. But I couldn't find my weapon. I'd put my weapon down somewhere and couldn't find it. And about that time, it was about 9 o'clock at night, the NVA rocketed the ammo dump at Benoit. And the explosions went off right across the airstrip from us. And rockets were going off left and right. Bombs were going off. And it was like being inside of a fireworks display while you're high on pot. And it just blew my mind. So I got down in the bunker and held on to the air mattress and just hoped everything would work out all right. And said, if I ever get out of this, I'm never going to do this again. Well, I didn't while I was in Vietnam. I didn't smoke pot again. I was the juice head. I, I drank when we came off of operation. And, but a lot of the guys smoked. 
But we had a hardcore bunch of soldiers, real good soldiers. And at the Battle of Docto in uh, November of 67, my company got hit in a battalion-sized ambush, and out of 148 people, 26 were killed, and everybody in the whole company was wounded but one person. I was in the hospital with amoebic dysentery when it happened, and they moved. I was sitting on a ward, and they brought this friend in next to me, and I looked at him. He was all wrapped up in bandages and stuff, and I said, Cain, what are you doing here? And he said, man, we got nailed. So this friend of mine that was in my platoon ended up in the same hospital I was in, and he told me all about the battle and what a mess it was. And when we got back to the company, both of us got back the same day, um, they formed Point and Recon teams, and I was carrying a World War One trench shotgun. And I stripped the cooling fins off of it in the bayonet stub and carried it as an offensive weapon and Claymore bags full of shotgun shells. And I got selected to be on the Point and Recon team. So the company carried my personal items and my food, and all I had to carry was a basic load of ammo and a poncho. And uh, we worked anywhere from, there were a six-man team, we worked anywhere from 200 to 2,000 meters ahead of the company. And on, my luck ran out on February the 3rd. I was permanent point man. I walked into a battalion-sized ambush, and we'd gotten to where we were going to set up perimeter for the night, but then I heard some movement in the bushes, and somebody said that there's some gooks here. And so I got my weapon, and I walked across the field. It was an open rubber tree plantation with high elephant grass in it. I walked across the field to get to them, and I let a North Vietnamese chamber around. I heard his boat go forward, and I didn't open up on him. He opened up on me. The first two shots of the battle went through my forearm and my upper arm and ricocheted off my humerus and tore out a hunk of muscle in the back of my arm. And uh, when you get shot for the first time, it shakes you up. Anyway, I had had problems with my shotgun and had broken firing pins in them ever so often. And so I had traded it in with the armor. He was to fix it, and he left me his M16, and I had the M16 at the time, and it was bad about jamming, and mine jammed right off the bat. And a friend of mine, Gene Buford, black guy from New York City, came over and cleared my weapon. I don't know how he did it. He got the round out of the chamber and handed it back to me, and we laid down a base of fire, and then he asked me, he said, can you run? And I said, well, I don't know. I think I can. And we took off running, and, man, I was flying. Uh, the North Vietnamese were opening up on us, and we were running parallel to their lines, and the bullets would come across at about waist high, and be hitting behind us off to the left as they were firing from the right, and we were running faster than they could swing their weapons, and we got to the center of the perimeter and got in a secure position. The first helicopter to come in and pick us up 
got shot down and crashed. And it came in and ricocheted off of a bunch of rubber tree stumps and then piled into one stump and kind of rose up and then flopped down and the blades kind of hit the ground. And the pilot, the two door gunners immediately stripped their weapons off and joined us in the center of the perimeter. The pilot and the co-pilot just sat there and couldn't believe what had happened. About that time, a 51 caliber machine gun bullet went between them in the plexiglass they were 20 feet in front of us and the one pilot couldn't get his armor back the other pilot jettisoned his door but he didn't unplug his headset and he ran out of slack in his headset and it jerked him back and he thought he'd been shot but uh Anyway, they finally gathered themselves and crawled over to us and said, you got to get us out of here. And I told them, I said, this is the safest y'all have been all day long. Y'all don't know how many times they, they open up so heavy when helicopters come in. Uh, this is the safest place you've been all day long. Uh, finally, another helicopter made it in, and then the Air Force came in and dropped CBUs, bombs, and tore down the tree line, and then they came in with napalm and set it on fire, and that wiped out the enemy. I got medevac to Quinyan Hospital and then on to Japan and rehabilitated in Japan for two months, got back, and we were guarding bridges, came down with malaria because they didn't give me malaria tablets, got a temperature of 104, 107, and they put me in a tub of ice back in the hospital and uh, got my temperature back down, and I stayed two weeks in the hospital and two weeks in the rear, and then got on a helicopter at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, went on ambush that night, and the next morning I was assigned a position, and the North Vietnamese attacked. And they came over the mountaintop and down on top of us. And the perimeter was kind of messed up. It was kind of strung up the side of a hill because there was already a clearing down there for a helicopter pad. And instead of cut, putting it around the top of the hill and cutting an LZ, they kind of strung it around the side of the hill. And the enemy couldn't pass that up. They came down from the high side and pinned us down. Uh, the first sign of attack, a B-40 rocket hit two positions down from me. Then it hit the position next to me. It had rained on us that night, and I had my weapon apart cleaning it. And I had my shirt off and had the pieces of weapon in front of me. When a B-40 rocket hit our position, splattered me in the chest, neck, and arm with rocket fragments, and there was a new guy on position with me. He jumped down in the bottom of the hole and was shooting straight up in the air. Well, I told him to get out of the hole and get behind the overhead cover and put down some fire while I was busy putting my weapon together. Then the North Vietnamese came running down. Uh, I got shot four times before I got my weapon put together. I got shot through the right ankle, through, shot through both thighs, and shot through my left arm. In the course of the battle, I got wounded nine times. I was shot seven times, 
and hitting the chest with B-40 rockets and hitting the head with grenade fragments. Uh, they shot m my finger off of my left hand, and I was having to shoot with a damaged hand guard. And then they shot around through the trigger guard, shot the trigger guard off, and shot a hole through the stock, and shot two fingers off of my right hand. And I was having to pull the trigger with my little finger and keep firing on the enemy. And finally they sent a duke down with a B-40 rocket launcher to take out our position. He was coming down the hill, and uh, he kneeled down, and in the excitement, he'd forgot to load his rocket launcher, and so I opened up on him and gut shot him. And he crawled up next to me and talked to me during the whole battle. The closest people to me during that battle were North Vietnamese. I killed about three other North Vietnamese, and they couldn't kill me. I was protected from my neck to my belly button, and everything else got a hole in it. Uh, I was hitting the right eye with grenade fragments and uh, got blinded temporarily and toward the end I could just fire and try to keep them back and they started throwing grenades and they just threw one grenade it landed on my side and didn't go off they threw another grenade and it landed in front of my position spun around and I laid my head down behind the sandbags and went off and went through the sandbags and hit me in the right eye um God was good to me that day. That whole day was a miracle. There were rounds that hit the log I was shooting over right in front of my neck or creased by bullets, and there was no place to go but the bullet through my neck, and yet the bullet didn't hit me. It ricocheted off to one side or the other. I have no idea how that happened. But God was good. Um, I was medevaced out to 17th Field Hospital, and uh, then from there to Quinion, and then from Quinion back to Charleston Naval Hospital in the United States. I spent a year in the hospital. I had seven surgeries while I was there. And while I was there, I took up sport parachuting in between surgeries, and I kept parachute on the ward. I used drugs heavily. They would have me on Demerol in between the surgeries. Plus, I had an orderly that brought me a pint of scotch every three days. And I would drink scotch and take Demerol and relax in the hospital and then when on the weekends we'd get passes if I hadn't had major surgery anytime soon I'd go to Barnwell South Carolina and skydive I met a special forces recruiter that took me under his wing and I got into competition skydiving 
and uh, went to Clemson, South Carolina, and participated in the um, collegiate, non-collegiate meet for accuracy. And I placed second in the first competition I was in. And then I went to Barnwell and went jumped the Southeastern Conference collegiate, non-collegiate meet and placed first in intermediate accuracy and in love skydiving. But I also loved the booze and I loved the opiates and I was on opiates heavily. I got a job working project transitioning at Midlands Aviation as a line boy pumping gas in airplanes, and then I took my flight training there for my commercial and multi-engine instrument ratings. And um, as soon as I got my commercial license, I got a job flying jumpers at a sport parachute center in Barnwell, South Carolina. And I'd work three days a week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and make enough money with that and my disability coming in and I lived in a trailer park, went out with married women, and just raised cane, lived a just amoral life. I didn't go to church anymore, didn't pray, didn't do anything, and um, went, got picked up by a guy who wanted me to worked for him. He bought an airplane back in Covington in Oxford, back in Georgia. This was, I was living in Columbia, South Carolina here and moved back to Georgia and worked for him at a large pallet manufacturing plant. It was more of a multiplex sawmill. And uh, I did cutting supervision and flew him around in his plane, although he didn't like for me to fly. He liked to fly, but he wanted somebody there in case he ran into problems. Um, I made so much money there that I bought me an airplane, and I had a 170B, um, rigged it up for jumping. I had it so I could take the doors off and skydive out of it. And I could party in it and fly down to Jackal Island and party and come back. And um, had a friend that lived over near um, Palmetto, Georgia. And went over there and was partying with him. And he wanted, we flew down to Jackal Island. We had double dates, and we flew our dates down to Jackal Island, parted, and then came back. And it was a, sun, a Monday afternoon, Labor Day, and they were having Labor Day races at the Strag Strip. And he wanted to go look at some property, but I thought I was a little too boozed up to go look at it, but he talked me into it anyway. We took off. They stopped the races, let us take off, and we were flying around looking at some property that he had, and I wasn't paying attention and stuck the right wingtip into a gum tree and tore off the wingtip and part of the leading edge of the airplane. I had Richard with me and his girlfriend, who later became his wife, in the plane with me, and if I'd been really thinking right, I would have gone down to Griffin, Georgia, and landed on that wide grass strip. But instead, I flew right back to that narrow 
drag strip, and they just finished up the races, and cars were pulling out of the parking lot. And I got on short final, and as soon as I pulled the power off, I lost directional control. And it took full power and three-quarters right rudder to maintain altitude. But I dropped down below the tree line. I went through a row of pine trees and then started out on a fuel-injected vet with rubber balls in the injection system. And when my prop hit the rubber balls, they just covered up the instrument panel. And I made a convertible out of that vet, hit a utility pole, then started landing on cars. And a policeman had seen me plane damage before we got there, and he told everybody to lay down between the cars. And nobody got hurt. God was good to me that day. Uh, the last car I hit was a Plymouth Fury, and there were three black guys in the front seat, and the prop chopped up the hood, and the spinner tapped the windshield, and a little piece of glass cut one of them on the cheek, but they all three fainted. Well, I broke my nose, and Richard banged up his jaw pretty good, and uh, Lee didn't hurt herself too bad. She got a bruise from seatbelt, but I got out and immediately started shaking the guys in the car, and they they came to, saw it was an airplane, and passed out again. And I was so happy that we didn't kill anybody. We loaded the black guy up in a hearse. A funeral home was providing ambulance service for the race. And he was the only one that we took into the hospital, although I had a bad broken nose and was bleeding pretty bad. Um, and had to have about 10 stitches in my nose. Um, we went to South Fulton Hospital and got patched up, and a nurse told us, said, Channel 11 News is out front, and I said, how can we get out of here without seeing them? And she showed us how to get out the back way, and my girlfriend came by and picked us up, and we got out of there and went back to the house and partied all night long celebrating nobody getting killed. And then the FAA met me in the morning. And the FAA, the... One guy, the oldest examiner, I looked, I got up, he called the house at night and said to meet us there at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I got down there at about 7.30, hadn't even gone to bed, and um, looked at the plane, and there were about four beer cans in the airplane, and I didn't take them out. I just left them in I was blue and sad. My airplane was torn all to pieces. And um, the FAA guys started questioning me, and I started out telling them I hit a gust of wind, but they quickly told me that I'd hit a gum tree somewhere else because there wasn't a gum tree around there, and they pretty well told me what had happened. And so I said, well, let me level with you. And I leveled with everything except about the drinking. And the older guy had a son-in-law in Vietnam at the time. And he had called the Covington Airport and talked to Bill Flanagan, who ran the airport. And Bill, I, I kept up 
and kept Bill paid in advance on all my tie-down fees, and he considered me a good customer. And he told him about my military experience, and that got me off the hook. And But I was so blue that I just gave up flying and went left Georgia, went back to South Carolina and took up being a paramedic for Carolina Ambulance Service for Richland County and worked as a paramedic and uh, got a job in Covington as a paramedic, set up the ambulance service there, gotten a political hassle after about four years, still hadn't quit drinking, and uh, got had gotten married, and my wife liked to smoke pot. I didn't, but she did. And anyway... Uh, Finally got back into ag flying, crop dusting, and crop dusted for 15 years, and my drinking got more out of control, and I was taking, uh, my best friend was a pharmacist, and I was taking uh, Demerol, and I was having a lot of pain from my injuries, my orthopedic injuries, and um uh, I sort of use that as an excuse to self-medicate. And toward the end of about, after about 15 years, I started doing things like running out of gas in the spray plane. I went down three times and landed on roads and highways and didn't crash a plane. But finally I ran out of gas in Odom, Georgia, about a quarter of a mile from the end of the runway, and wadded the airplane up in a ball and that let me know that God was good again didn't put a scratch on me but that let me know I had to seek recovery was there ever a season um and this is more of like a mental thing than than a literal thing but was there ever a season of your life that you felt like a state of mind that you felt you would never get out of, like a, just a negative place where at that time you felt like, I'll always feel this way. And, you know, and I've, I've been through that, which I've talked about on other podcasts, but that's why I asked this question. I've had times where um, I just felt like the devil was telling me, the way you feel now, you'll always feel this way. And did you I, ever have something like that? I did in my early recovery. My using got so bad, and I was using everything that I decided to swear off. And I stayed clean for 13 months using AA and then relapsed. And then I made a serious effort to go into treatment. And I quit everything on my own, including opiates and and alcohol, and waited to get accepted into the VA. And they kept turning me down. And finally, the last day on Friday, I went in starting Monday of that week. And the last day on Friday, uh, they turned me down. I started crying, jumped underneath the desk, grabbed a hold of the lady's leg and said, you got to get me in here. And she jumped up and was dragging me around the floor. And I, I said, I got to get in here. And so I got in here. But after about three weeks of being in there, my attitudes went back to old attitudes and stuff like that. And then post-acute withdrawal hit me, and 
that's when I literally lost my mind. Um, uh, PTSD from Vietnam came out, and it was terrifying. I ended up on the psych ward and refused to take any medicine. Would just walk the ward with carrying a Bible and um, hoping that uh, God would have mercy on me. But feeling like I'd never make it, like I, I was doomed. I got suicidal. I was discharged because I wouldn't take the medication. I got in a bathtub with a 12-gauge shotgun, put a, stuck a round in the magazine well, and uh, leaned back on a Sears and Roebuck catalog to make my family proud that I didn't chip the enamel in the tub, put a low brass shell in the magazine well, put a Bible on the commode seat to the 23rd Psalm, knowing that if I pulled the trigger, I was going to hell. And I took a deep breath and pulled the trigger, and it went click and didn't fire. What had happened, I hadn't pumped around in the chamber. So I pumped around in the chamber, and I was crying, but I couldn't pull the trigger a second time. And that was my low point. That was that was my low point. What day-to-day uh, -day things now do you do um, to keep from going back to, to negative uh, patterns? You know, um, even though regardless, you know, I think regardless of your circumstance now where you're you know, your circumstance now may be much safer than, than it was in the past, but it's still easy, at least for me, to, regardless of the circumstance, to go back to a ne negative way of thinking because I spent so much time there. It's comfortable. God's blessings. Finally, I got used to accepting God's blessings. I got a feel for it. I started realizing that I had been insane about trying to feel good feeling high all the time and that it was a form of insanity and that God didn't want me to be that way and so I started feeling good about God's blessing I pray regularly I married a, I divorced my other wife I married a Christian lady and got saved even started teaching Sunday school and quit smoking so I wouldn't look bad teaching Sunday school with the kids. I just changed my whole life. And it was gradual, but it was changes that got completed. Working the steps in the fellowship, working the principles of Celebrate Recovery, and getting involved in Celebrate Recovery, getting involved in Military Order of the Purple Heart, outside service mm. to people mm. uh, made it worthwhile. I get a good feeling by sharing with other people. Mm. And, and it's worth it. It, it's worth it to me. The highs that I used to get with skydiving and scuba diving and uh, uh, caving, 
come in a new way with my relationship with God. It's not a high. It's a, a, a comforting, warm, caressing, almost sensual feeling that God loves me. He loves me and takes care of me, and he wants the best for me. And if I'll just listen to him, be still enough to listen to him, then he will respond, and he, and he does. Well, thank you so much, Curry, for your time and just for your, your honesty. That is going to do it uh, for this week. We'll see you next Monday. Thank you guys so much.